and welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today's podcast was recorded before a live audience at the Metropolitan Museum of Art's World War I and the Visual Arts exhibit. In this episode, conducted alongside the artwork of our relative and my namesake, Wyndham Lewis, we talk about the role of art as a motivator and comfort during and after wartime. Today, we speak with Pulitzer Prize finalist and one of America's leading playwrights, Rajiv Joseph, whose recent play, Archduke, a dark comedy which imagines the recruitment and radicalization of the young men whose assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand lit the fuse resulting in the First World War. I'd like to thank the Metropolitan Museum of Art for having the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast and Rajiv Joseph for speaking with us. This episode's a little different from our normal discussions of music, but I hope you'll enjoy our conversation with award-winning playwright Rajiv Joseph. delighted to uh, welcome you to this event, uh, my first podcast taping, <laughs> and I'm sure also for many of you. Um, uh, this came about uh, thanks to Jennifer and her husband Tom, who went to high school with these guys, or with this guy, sorry, Wyndham Lewis, and, um, and he will tell you more about uh, what's going on. Um, Anyway, I should just say, uh, before we go on, uh, that the education programs for this exhibition are made possible by the general delegation of the government of Flanders to the USA. And uh, I don't have uh, much more to say. I'm just going to turn it over to you. Um. All right. Well, let me, uh, let me quick uh, do a, a microphone check. Let me see. Oh, there we go. Are we competing on a... Hello? Hello. Hey. All right. Well, first I just wanted to say uh, thanks so much to Nadine, uh, Jen Farrell, and Jillian Fifferling uh, in the Department of Drawings and Prints for being such accommodating hosts and helping us to put this together. I uh, also wanted to thank Flanders House, uh, as Nadine did before, um, and the patrons and donors of the Met who made this spectacular exhibition possible, and the Met for being the best podcasting venue in New York City. <laughs> newly, newly minted as a podcasting venue, I think. Um, so first, uh, just a little bit of background about Brother, 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 um, which is a podcast that I host with my half-brother, Wyndham Lewis, and his other half-brother, Jeremy Sartori, who isn't here today, because, uh, but, but he can be here on the podcast uh, every week. Um, each of us was born 10 years apart in 68, 76, and 1988 um, to different parental permutations. So... <laughs> Basically, we all grew up in different places throughout the U.S. and U.K. and only met for the first time in 2006 uh, at a music festival, no less. Um, so now we get together weekly to talk about music and entertainment, the arts, um, and in the process are sort of getting to know each other in real time. Um, for anybody wondering what a podcast is, uh, we may have a couple. It's like an on-demand radio show, which I guess just kind of proves that history repeats itself since we're now all huddling again around, uh, uh, around the radio for, uh, to hear our stories once a week. But um, for anybody who is wondering uh, what is going on with our family, I'm still trying to figure that out. There are uh, too, many, uh, too many different roads to explore. Um, 
So I think, you know, today we're, we're thrilled to be hosting this podcast and live event um, from World War I and the visual arts at the Met. Uh, for any New Yorkers who are listening to the podcast at home and aren't here today, um, I couldn't recommend it uh, more highly, so definitely come out and, and take a look. Um, the exhibition was organized to commemorate the anniversary of World War I, focusing on the impact of the war on visual art. Um, and moving chronologically from its outbreak to the decade after the armistice, uh, the exhibition highlights the diverse ways that artists represented the horrors of modern warfare. So the works by artists including Otto Dix, Nevinson, Gross, Colvitz, Leger, and Severini reflect a variety of responses ranging from nationalist enthusiasm, which we'll talk more about today, um, to a more somber reflection on the carnage and mass devastation that resulted. Um, and it also features uh, our antecedent and Wyndham's namesake, Wyndham Lewis. So in sum, this, uh, this exhibition reveals, I think, how one group of visual artists responded to the horrors of war and the challenges of global politics. Um, and with that, I will turn it over to, uh, to Wyndham to introduce our very own artist, Rajiv Joseph, who has responded uh, to similar themes in our own time. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm just going to do a brief introduction of Rajiv. Uh, Rajiv's play, Rajiv Joseph's play, Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo, was a 2010 Pulitzer Prize finalist for drama and also awarded a grant for Outstanding New American Play by the National Endowment for the Arts. His play, Guards of the Taj, was a 2016 Obie winner for Best New American Play and 2016 Lucille Lortel winner for Best Play. His play, Archduke, about the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, premiered this past spring at the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles. And his latest play, Describe the Night, which spans 90 years of Russian history, will have its New York premiere this November at the Atlantic Theater Company. He wrote the libretto for the opera Shalimar the Clown, based on the novel by Salman Rushdie, which premiered last year at the Opera Theater of St. Louis. He was also the co-writer of the feature film Draft Day and wrote on Showtime series Nurse Jackie, where he worked alongside such luminaries as myself. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, Rajiv. Thanks for having me, guys. It's great to be here. So to kick things off, um, why don't you walk us through uh, your play, Archduke? Sure thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I uh, am a playwright, and I was uh, really interested in thinking about World War I just as of a few years ago. I, I'm, I enjoy history, but I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a history buff. Um, I just, I, I, I tend to, something tends to grab my attention, and uh, I, I, I then kind of follow it down the rabbit hole. I began thinking about not just World War I, but the actual beginning of it. Um, I think a few years ago in 2014, uh, when it was a, the 100-year anniversary of the war, and I began thinking about the, uh, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, and I guess I was thinking about how... When you, when you look at World War One, you see that this this war that took place between 1914 and 1918, uh, in my opinion at least, really came to define you know or or you know the it, the 20th century kind of became what it is as a result of that war the 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 technological advancements and the devastation of that war and prior to 1914 it seemed that the world was still entrenched in the 19th century. And after the war ended, we were firmly in the 20th century. And it made me start thinking, like, is a century like a person? In which case, it takes about 18 years for a person to develop into who they actually are going to be. And if that's the case, that's exactly where we are right about now. 
in the 21st century. We're 18 years into it. And what does that mean? Well, it means on one level, it means that we actually don't know what the 21st century is yet. And it also means that we are about to find out. And Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> no matter how sunny your outlook is as a person, and I'm a pretty optimistic person, that notion kind of fills me with dread. Because I think if you had been living in 1914 in Europe or in the United States or wherever, and, you, and the world was what you thought it was, you had no idea what was coming ahead. And so I was interested in that moment as a way of looking at today. So my play, Archduke, concerns uh, Gavrilo Princip and two of his cohorts and the man, the Serbian man who recruited them to carry out this deed of assassinating uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo in 1914, the, events, the event that would lead to the First World War. So I've always found that particular story uh, very interesting because it, it uh, you know, obviously it, it had such dramatic impact, but it, it also seemed like it was committed by a, a rather bumbling group of people who, who kind of didn't have a plan worked out and got lucky. How did you, tell us about researching Archduke and, the, and if you can involve you know, that little uh, piece of history for people who don't, aren't maybe not um, entirely aware of how that happened. So what's interesting is that when like the first draft I write, wrote about it, I didn't know much at all. I was kind of basing it on my own knowledge of it from high school and then like a few quick articles that I had read. And I wrote this kind of ponderous, uh, you know, boring like, history lesson in the form of a play. And then I started doing more research on it. And as I did, I kept on finding myself kind of laughing, um, you know, in spite of it all because it was such a bumbling effort on the part of these kids. And I, all of a sudden, you look at the pictures of these guys, and they look like grown men, but they're all 19 years old. And they were part, ostensibly part of a, a, uh, a terrorist, a Serbian terrorist group called the Black Hand. And yet they were really just these students or ex-students who were all also uh, dying of tuberculosis, which at the time was a death sentence for young men of their economic stature. And so that changed things. And it also made it seem very uh, relevant in the, in the sense that here's some young men who are dying and are being recruited by older men with stature saying, don't you want your lives to be worth something? Um, but when they, when they finally carried this out, they were all given cyanide pills to eat uh, after they carried out the deed, uh, none of the cyanide work had just made them sick to their stomach. Um, Nadelko uh, Kabrinovich, who was one of the uh, young men in the group, he fired the first shot. He threw a bomb uh, that was in a, I think, a bouquet of flowers at the car that had the Archduke in it. And, um, <laughs> and he hit the wrong car, and it blew up the wrong car. And so as a result, he took his, his cyanide, and it didn't work. And so he jumped into the river, which was only two inches deep, and instead of killing himself, just broke his leg. And so they, they pulled him out of there. And, it, and, and suddenly it, it felt like this kind of Keystone Cops sort of um, endeavor. And that really led me down this kind of approach of wondering if this play was actually a comedy, which is what I you know, attempted to write anyhow. The, um, insofar as that it's a dark comedy, it's very black, I don't think it makes light of the events, but it felt, it felt to me that there was this, this innocence meeting 
at this gigantic geopolitical event that they had no idea they were starting this war. And in the and when you put those two kind of ingredients together, the result is not you know some kind of deep dark drama, but actually an absurdist comedy. And that's what my play actually ends up being. Well, Winston Churchill uh, is famous for you know famously said the Balkans produce more history than they can consume locally, um, <laughs> which is a great quote. But uh, Christian had a, an interesting question uh, that dovetails nicely with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the core themes in the play is this sort of tension or juxta, uh, juxtaposition between sort of personal interests, um, you know, your character's eating a sandwich or, or riding a train for the first time, um, and these sort of universal or, or national interests, like uh, seceding from Austro-Hungary, um, which is like a, a slightly more ambitious endeavor, I think. Um, you know, the art in the exhibition is, is aimed at translating, I think, some of those global interests into personal ones. Um, and, you know, these can serve as either motivation in the form of propaganda um, and, you know, uh, sort of nationalist motivations or, um, you know, as a bomb, as, as in the case uh, in this room, you know, I think sort of healing some of the wounds from the, from the war. Um, so, I, I mean, you, like, talk a little bit about how you see art as serving as, like, the connective tissue between the sort of personal uh, and, the, and the universal or the sort of larger historical events. Yeah, I mean... You know, just to go back a little bit, I, I went to NYU for dramatic writing, uh, playwriting and screenwriting um, in 2002 to 2004. And uh, we had a teacher there who uh, was a terrific uh, screenwriting teacher named Jeremy Pixer. And he, uh, he was like the one guy there who just wouldn't, didn't care about telling us that what we were writing was absolute crap. You know, we all came in with ideas for screenplays our first day of class. And he said, every one of these is terrible. They all suck. And he's like, you got to all come back with new ideas tomorrow. We all did. And he's like, these are just as bad. These are worse, you know. <laughs> and uh, and so we're like, I don't know what to do. And and like, and and he he laid it down like this. He's like, first of all, he's like, none of these stories matter, and none of them have any stakes, and none of them have any dramatic action. And I thought I knew what all those things meant, but I think I didn't. I think that I was writing stories that I was like, well, this is interesting, or this is about an interesting relationship, or this is about a person I'm interested in, or an event I'm interested in. It was all about interested, interested, interested. And it didn't have any juice, meaning like there was no actual um, danger involved. And it wasn't until I, the first thing I wrote for him that actually worked, that he said I could write, uh, was a really like, overtly political story about um, something going on in the United States at that time about these sort of um, uh, Muslims that were trying to escape into Canada and were being kind of bottled up at the border. And so there were all these refugee camps opening at, in, like, Vermont. And so I, I like, I, I wrote a screenplay about that, and it, and it really opened up a world for me. And it's since then... Um, not exclusively, but uh, it, it feels like whenever I, I'm, I'm attracted to a story, there's some kind of political or historical bent to it. And I, I find that, in, for me anyhow, um, you know, we live in really interesting times. And, you know, I was writing this play as a way of, of examining, you know, the world right now because I don't think I'm able to write a play about 2000. 15, 2016, 2017, I, I don't feel equipped to do that. But I feel that my feelings about now, my feelings about the politics or the, 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 the global situation can be explored through exploring the, the exact same things 100 years ago because then, then you kind of set up this like echo chamber, it seems. And so what was interesting about this play is that, you know, just as I said to you guys before, you know, 
we're entering that, that moment, right? That two, we're in 2017, we're entering 2018, that moment where the, maybe the, the, defining, uh, the, the defining moment of the century is, has happened or is about to happen. And we were doing a, a workshop of Archduke in Los Angeles at the taper before it opened um, the week of the election. And we left you know, to go home and watch the election returns in the middle of that week. And, and, it was, and we came back the next day, and, and the, the entire play felt different, and, and the entire play felt like heated in this way that we didn't want it to feel heated, because none of us had anticipated the election results being what they were. And to the extent that like, even when we were talking about that like a few days before, like something's going to happen. Like, there's going to be an event that happens that changes the way the world works. Um, and then literally I was like, I don't think it's the election, but you know, it could be, but I mean, I think it's going to be something else. I think it might, it will find out what it is. And of course, at least in that moment, it felt very much like it was the election. It felt like something had shifted in this bizarre, absurd way that a hundred years from now, someone's going to write a really funny comedy about it. If there's a world to be writing a comedy about, um, but that's what it felt like at the time. Anyhow. Well, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, your plays are a combination of historical facts imagine dialogue and interaction. I mean, there's, there's no, um, you know, there's no way to cite the conversation that uh, Principe was having in the, in the room with the doctor at the time. So, you know, at what point do you, as a writer, say, um, okay, history book, I'll take it from here? I mean, how much of it is fact-based? How, you know, I mean, in, let us, you know, tell us what happens when you attack a, a historical subject. Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is the kind of, like, it's, it's a chance I take that, um, depending on who sees my play and who I talk about with it, can argue with me. You know, um, I think there's a danger in doing too much research. Um, but I, I did, I think, my fair share of it. Um, the, the, the lion's share of it was actually going to Belgrade and Sarajevo last year and kind of retracing as many steps as I could and like going to the bars that still exist that Gavrilo Princip and his friends went to in Belgrade. Walking, There's an assassination tour you can actually take in Sarajevo, which I did, of course. <laughs> the um, grassy knoll. Yeah, exactly. And the, but this, you know, the Sarajevo assassination tour, if you ever go to Sarajevo, I highly recommend it. It just so happened that I went with my director for my play, Giovanna Sardelli, and we signed up for the assassination tour, showed up at 10 a.m., and it was just the two of us and this young man named Riyadh. And he took us around. He first he took us around the corner to this bridge, and uh, I thought, oh, there's something very significant about this bridge. He's like, no, no, this is just a shady place. I want to start here to talk to you about the Ottoman Empire, 700 years before the assassination. And we're like, whoa, like let's like like that's how this started. He he wanted to give full contextual kind of uh, perspective on where we were and how history led up to this moment. And so it was really a fascinating like three hour like walk through Sarajevo, which every so often punctuates like, now we get a coffee, you know, and we sit down and have a coffee and we sit and have a And so it was like, it was a beautiful experience. But like, so I, I did that and I, and I read this great book called Sleepwalkers, um, which you may have heard about. It's, 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 it's a great uh, nonfiction book about the, the, the lead up to and, and the start of the war, um, really focusing on these key players in Serbia and, and, and Bosnia. But um, at a certain point, there's just a departure. But like, you know, one of the primary characters in this is the is the man who recruits these young men. His name is Dragutin Dmitrievich, and uh, he was this um, bloodthirsty, monstrous, uh, larger than life individual. And um, when I had done like a cursory amount of research on him, I started I started writing a draft of the play, and it just so worked out that like. 
I had this image in my head of like a young woman in the play. And so I was like, oh, she'll be his daughter. And then I was like, well, maybe I should fact check that. And then of course it was like, no, 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 no. The guy didn't have any children. The guy never married. The guy hated any kind of domestic life. And that really, I was like, oh, that's a really important piece of information. That informs who this guy is because these young men are his family. These young men are the men he recruits are become like sons to him. And he actually detested women. And that, like that, that, that hatred of women uh, really started to inform the the uh, what how he how he brainwashes these young men and what his kind of purposes are. He was actually responsible for the assassination of the king and queen of Serbia about twenty years prior to this. And in all the accounts of that, it was the the assassination of the queen rather than the king that he talked about more, that he that he relished more. Um, that he felt was it was her fault that the king got was 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 assassinated, and in part of that was because she was twenty years older than him and wasn't royalty. She had been his mother's maid servant, and he had married her, and it was a huge scandal. And um, and so this sort of uh, and you see it now with the prime minister of France, who's married a woman who's used to be his teacher, and um, you know Trump says you look great, and and there's this there's like all these kind of like these these. These, yeah, like these these things that people say, and and so I started writing a play that was also in, in part about you know uh, misogyny without again not knowing where this where this play and where history was headed, and it's and it seemed after the election, at least from my perspective, that um, this was actually that this <laughs> this stuff is is it's it's always unfortunately so prev- prevalent and always in such the the front foot of geopolitics the way that men hate women. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I, you know, I did, you know, I have had the benefit of reading this, uh, not everyone here has, but uh, and a number of other of uh, um, Rajiv's plays, uh, Bengal Tiger, Baghdad Zoo, uh, a lot of them take place you know, sort of examining a young man's psyche. Um, where does that sort of exploration come from? I mean, you're, you're particularly during wartime, you've you've written now several plays that take place um, where uh, soldier young soldiers are finding their footing or not finding their footing. Um, what where does that sort of desire to to sort of explore that particular place in, in a young man's brain come from? So I mean, like, <clears throat> I know for a fact um, that I'd be a terrible soldier. If I ever had been a soldier, and um, I would be one of the first killed in battle, um, I'm not a good fighter in that regard. Uh, when I walk around an exhibit like this and I see the images that are so just stark, uh, it, it 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 compounds that for me. I'm, I just I think about I, it's it's unfathomable to me what it must be like in war, uh, especially as a young person whose life has just begun. And it it, it kind of like when I, when I if I ever really kind of brood on it, which I think is what goes into most kind of creative writing when you create characters, is that you brood, you obsess over an emotional state that you cannot fathom. Uh, some people don't. I mean, some people write from a very autobiographical perspective. I, I never do because I kind of find my life to be very boring and myself to be quite boring. But like when I think about what it must be like for a young woman or a young man to be in a highly stressful situation, the likes of which I can't, have never experienced, um, I, f- I find that really scary and interesting. And so both with Bengal Tiger and, and with uh, Archduke, um, I was able to kind of really open that up and think about that. And so going, going back to like this idea that like, 
these 19-year-old young men who are poor and have tuberculosis and are most certainly going to die are angry, frightened, connecting with each other over that. Like the, my, one of my favorite scenes in the play is when these young men meet each other for the first time. And it's not about really, they don't like to talk about the fact that they all have tuberculosis. They really almost barely mention it. One guy just flat out denies that he is a lunger. That's what they call each other, lungers. Um, what they talk about really is sandwiches because they really want one. And um, hunger, the need for a good piece of food is what kind of motivates them. And then once they have that food and then they're being to talked to by Dragutin Dmitrievich about, you know, he keeps asking them, do you feel the suffocating grip of Austro-Hungary? And these 19-year-olds are like, um, yeah, I guess. I, I don't know. Do you? Like, you know, I, I, I'm just glad that I have some food on my plate. And what ends up motivating them a second time is the prospect of riding a train. And so, I mean, like, which they've never done. And so I, I like to look at, like, what I feel are very human impulses that, um, that, are, that are within those stories that we read about history. We read about Gavrilo Princip shot transferred an archduke. And then you're like, oh, he was only 19, year old, 19 years old when he did that. And then he's like, oh, he had tuberculosis. And now I'm thinking about a 19-year-old with tuberculosis shooting a guy and he's never shot a guy before. And, I, and that's just a character to me, and I, and I want to get inside that. And I think that's what art can do. That's what, what theater and paintings and film and music is that it, it, it provides this emotional texture and emotional information that the history books um, are not supposed to and are unable to address. It's funny you say you'd make a, a terrible soldier and, and also that you're... Uh, a boring person because if I crept into your brain, I, I have to say, uh, having worked with Rajiv and read his plays, uh, he has this incredible knack for creating really, really creative um, and horrifying violence. Um, <laughs> and a tornado, or yeah. yeah, I mean, this there's a lot of disemboweling, there's a fair amount of dismemberment. I remember we used to pitch uh, injury stories on Nurse Jackie, and he said, Well, how about a, a couple that uh, you know, has a, uh, a, a sort of lover's bond and they're going to commit suicide and so they handcuff themselves to each other and one of them lives with the other one's arm attached to them. Uh, and, true story. Uh, I mean, it, not true story, but it did happen. We didn't do that story yeah. on us, Jackie. So I wanted to just say, you know, like what, if, if for somebody who, who has such a, a fear of being involved in, in that kind of world of fighting and, you know, what, what makes you utilize such incredibly violent imagery. Um, Brad Fleischer's here today who, who starred as uh, the soldier who got his hand bitten off by a tiger at the beginning of Bengal <laughs> Tiger. And what, what, you know, what prompts you to use that as a particular um, you know, sort of uh, device in your, in your work? I mean, I gotta say that like, there's a, probably about 10 different answers that would be acceptable, but I mean, one of them is that like, in my heart, I'm still like an adolescent boy. Like, I like to see blood and guts. You know? I, I find it thrilling to see it in both movies and especially on stage. I like the way that blood looks under lights. Um, and I think it's quite beautiful, I think it's absurd. Um, I, I find it usually an entryway into um, getting at those deeper characters, you know, like the, the threat of violence. I was just, every day I listen to the, the Writer's Almanac as a podcast, a, a six to seven minute podcast every day with Garrison Keillor, and it was Elmore Leonard's birthday either today or yesterday. And someone asked him why he always writes about crime. And he said, I think when, whenever there's a threat of death or a gun going off, um, 
the, the story moves quicker and people tell the truth more. <laughs> and uh, and I, I kind of, I guess I feel that way in theater. Um, I, I'd like to challenge myself um, to, uh, <laughs> to, 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 to find the drama where there's not hands being chopped off. Um, Describe the Night, which opens uh, next month at the Atlantic, doesn't have any... Um, doesn't have any on-screen violence, but I mean, on-stage violence. To, you're trying to sell this thing. I know, but uh, <laughs> but th- but there are we do we still do have a gross-out moment where mm-hmm. the audience uh, goes, <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess it's to me it's 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 all of the above. <laughs> so is some of the I mean the absurdity of the violence that takes place is it I mean is it geared toward just sort of humanizing the characters and creating like uh, sort of connections between them that exist um, independent of like the bigger political barriers or or you know national boundaries that as you say you read about in the history textbooks? Well, I think it just depends. It depends on each you know each each moment of it. I mean, I, I have this play called Guards at the Taj, which uh, came out a couple of years ago. And it's a two-person play, and it's about two imperial guards in India in the 1600s. And they are guarding the newly unveiled Taj Mahal. And one of the, one of the, the legends of that is that after the Taj Mahal was completed, the emperor Shah Jahan was so moved by it that he ordered that all the artisans chop off, uh, all the artists that, 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 that helped build it have their hands chopped off so that no, nothing so beautiful is ever built again. That and happened so, at Trump Tower as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, um, so these guys, these two guys in the play are the guys who chop off all these hands. So the second scene of the play opens up with them standing in a room of blood and there's just blood everywhere, like up to their knees if possible. And, uh, and they spend the scene cleaning it and talking about or trying not to talk about the trauma they just went through. But that trauma and that, the absurdity of all that blood opens up the question of the play, which, you know, like you know, Archduke or like Bengal Tiger, in some ways deals with soldiers or guards in this case uh, being forced to do something, you know, unfathomable and how two people might, re- might react in a different way to that. And it opens up a, a question of how, how you deal with authority, um, how you you know negotiate a rift between a friendship, and also how you understand you know the world at large, whether you, whether you find it a place worth doing terrible things for or a place that you'd rather you know you'd rather step out of because it's it's become too grotesque. And so um, in in the case of that play, and in the case I think of much of the violence I have on stage, it's it's acting as a launching pad for behavior. <coughs> Well, I was just going to say that the captain in the Archduke is sort of a master manipulator, and, and we're surrounded here um, by propaganda posters and, and art um, that sort of, uh, a lot of uh, the art here is, is sort of meant to compel uh, certain feelings and or uh, actual motivation um, for people to sign up or to go to war. Uh, Jennifer had uh, mentioned that, you know, for a lot of these people, much like the, the characters in Archduke, you know, the idea of war was an idea, uh, it was sort of a, a, you know, a dreamy, faraway thing that, you know, allowed people to leave the, you know, one square mile plot of land they'd lived on their entire right. life and never left. Um, you know, what kind of, uh, you know, how do you find the, the, the sort of art um, or the, the characters in yours, like the captain, um, you know, how do, they, how do they coerce, how do they, uh, you know, shape these, the minds of, of you know, these young folks? So yeah, the, there's the the central scene of Archduke is uh, these young men, these three young boys are finally eating a nice meal, 
in, in this banquet hall that the captain owns, and behind them is a, an absurdly large map of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. In our production in, uh, in Los Angeles, the map could have filled this room. Like, the dimensions of the room were probably the size of the map itself. And it, it hung as this kind of canvas drape, you know, behind them. And uh, the captain, could get, he stood on the table, he had his riding crop, he'd smack the map, and he'd, and he'd gesture to it. And then, you know, they're just eating and, and being happy that they're getting more and more food. Um, there was, that was the hardest scene I think I ever had to write. It's like a 40-minute scene, and it's a, it's a scene in which the process is to watch a man brainwash three young men. And so this was like one of those really interesting dances between research and imagination because um, I started to get inside this guy's head, Dragutin Dmitrievich, his, um, his misogyny, his, um, his nationalism, his passion, his kind of fiery persona. And he kept on saying, I kept on having him say, like, do you feel the suffocating grip of Austro-Hungary? And these kids, not even knowing what that meant, not even knowing what Austro-Hungary was, not even knowing like they're, that, that they are ruled by somebody, you know? And, and then I, I, I had the notion that like, he keeps asking them, like he's, he asked one boy, like, what chokes you? What chokes you? Tell me, somebody here, what chokes you? And Gavrilo, trying to come up with an answer just because he has to, says, blood? And he's like, exactly, blood. And so now, because of that, and I just wrote it because it sounded good, but then I had the, I had the whole path of, of, the, of the brainwashing, which was that he said, you are sick because of them. You have illness because of what they have sown in our country. The reason the young people of this country are going to their graves, choking on their own blood that rises up in their lungs, is because of the suffocating grip of Austro-Hungary. And that's a nonsense notion. But that's the kind of notion that makes young men fight and die. And they now had a place to put their rage. They now had someone to blame for their bad luck in the world. And it seems to me that that's the step. That's the step of brainwashing a young man or a woman, usually a young man, to do something awful. And... Um, I think the, the seeds were there for me, but it's always like there's always an imaginative leap somewhere that comes from a turn of phrase that, that's, that's put together through both facts and you know, fictions. So it, I think it's safe to say that might be kind of a, a pretext or a pretense for you know, contemporary um, radicalization. And I, I'm sure. kind of interested, you know, what, can anybody be radicalized? I mean, is that a, is that a sort of founding belief here? Um, are there certain circumstances that contribute to it? Is it? I mean, is it in? Is the potential to to become fully radicalized like that? You know, in everybody here. I personally believe so. I mean, that's that's a personal belief because I sit around and I think about, you know, you know part of what it, part of what fascinated me about this this play, Archduke, like the why I started writing it was that I, as a kid growing up in the 80s and 90s in the United States in a you know upper middle class family going to college there's a sense that like um, that we're like that this this is how the, we're living in the happy ending we're living in like the the history that we study was the struggle of america through the revolutionary war the civil war the first world war the second world war that like through all those things you know we found ourselves here and 
were safe and sound. We all lived happily ever after. And of course, it's not, it's not true even for Americans, but um, you know, in recent years, I've, I've obviously begun to question that more and more and more, I think mainly because I'm just reading more history and becoming more cognizant of the world at large. But um, I don't know. I, I think that if, if, if everything got flipped and some particular country bombed the hell out of my city, killed everyone in my family, killed my wife and children, uh, I might have the capacity to become radicalized and strap bombs to myself and blow people up if it was the only recourse in my imagination, in my reasoning of the world, and if I had no reason to live anymore. Um, when I imagine things like that, um, I can't, I, it, it, there's a, you know, a blinding rage take hold, takes hold. Um, luckily, I just have to, I, that's all I can do is imagine it because I haven't had to experience it. But um, I, I think that like what, what so many people in this world go through on a daily basis is uh, so beyond our ken uh, that even thinking about it a little bit uh, makes me twitch. Well, not to get too philosophical, but is the ability? Do you, I mean? Do you think that the ability to to imagine that scenario and to process it and rationalize it? Do you think that it keeps you from potentially ever being uh, uh, able to to be radicalized? Or is yeah, that... I mean, I I think so. I hope so. I mean, like I, I hope so too. I, I I mean, ultimately, I think that's that's the purpose of art. You know, the purpose of this building. Uh, this temple that we sit in is 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 that is that very notion that this is what a civilized society creates, and we create it to maintain and to honor history and art and the struggle to make those things, and we can have exhibits like this that are so incredible and 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 tell such a story, a story that I don't even scratch the surface of in my play. And the narrative of this beautiful exhibit, the narrative of the Rodin exhibit next door, the narrative of this entire place is uh, that, that reminder of uh, this is why things matter and this is why you can't be a nihilist in spite of what you might feel, in spite of you know, injustice, in spite of you know, those things. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's me talking out of both sides of my mouth. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to brother, brother, brother. <laughs> so, I, I'm interested in the idea that individuals can have such a such an outsized impact on world affairs. And I think, I mean, part of it was when I was reading this play, I was I was sort of struggling with the notion that you know these these three kids, I mean, you know, and bumbling idiots, they they really are. Um, that they could set off this chain reaction and this this sort of course of events um, that so radically altered and you know dramatically altered the lives of just tens of millions of people. Um, I mean, that's a really difficult thing to process. I think, um, and I, I'm sort of curious to hear your thoughts on you know is that is that what drew you to these particular characters? I mean, they never they didn't frankly live long enough to to see it happen, but um, but you know it, it sort of had. Uh, uh, like an exponential effect, I guess. Well, actually, I mean, Gavrilo Princi died after the war ended. Um, he lived until 1918. He lost his arm because of his tuberculosis. He, he wasted away in a, in a prison. Um, and I think, I, I don't know how well, and there was a version of the play that ended when the war ended. Um, and he, and he, he gained some sort of insight into the apocalypse that he had wrought through this one action. But it's, I mean... That it was it was hard to do that, and and part of the reason it's hard to do that is that like 
you, you can't blame the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. You can't blame the First World War on it. It was merely, uh, it was like, you know, it was the, what do they call it, the fuse that was lit, you know, and, and, and it blew up because of that. If it hadn't been that, it would have been something else. The, the world was primed for some kind of global conflict, um, and that just happened to be the thing that happened. Um, and, but that's what's, so, that's what's so absurd about it. That's what led me towards comedy, and like I say that, like I, I don't I don't find any of this funny, and I don't I don't find you know I don't find it worth making light of, and I don't think the play does that. But it it was, it's it's within the very absurdity of something as you know, as as crazy as like these kids who want a train ride and a sandwich end up shooting a guy and his wife and causing this this cataclysm. I mean that's that's the whole point. The point is that it all started out as a joke, and then this happened. And so, um, you know, I guess, I don't know if that answers the question, but it's like this idea of, um, I, I mean, I don't know if there's any, any, any war that has such a, a unique and specific, you know, starting point as this does, and that, that lends itself towards storytelling, you know? It's funny, the, uh, you know, again, uh, <coughs> courtesy of, of uh, touring this um, exhibit with, with Jennifer and, and Nadine, um, I, you know, I found that the most horrifying thing I, I came to realize, and it, it does speak to your theory of of uh, that century not having come to full adulthood, um, and just the lack of preparation for something like this. The most soldiers didn't even have helmets until halfway through the war. That's what she just told me. That's amazing. I mean, it's, it's, it's unreal. It, it really is. You know, this this sort of and and it is. Uh, you know, a, a sort of metaphor for. Um, people having to grow up more quickly during wartime. I mean, they're right. just, you know, we had to innovate um, in, during modern warfare on the fly. It's, it's a pretty disturbing idea. But one of the things, you know, uh, separate from that, one of the things I wanted to ask you about your own writing is that, um, you know, at the core of this and, and uh, Bengal Tiger and some of the others is this sort of notion um, or this, uh, you know, sort of boys, young men, um, sort of pining for a sense of heroism, mm -hmm. but there are absolutely no heroes ever in your plays. So how do you, you know, how do you sort of reconcile, or just talk about that? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've written a lot of plays about you know adolescent-minded young men. That's why Brad is a natural uh, <laughs> actor for these roles. Um, and talking tigers. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I find, you know, again, I find humor in, in that, like, in the way that, like, so we, we have these gigantic wars, and we send young men who are, you know, are barely men, that are, you know, they're boys, to war, and teenage boys are funny. They're also stupid, and sometimes they're brave, and sometimes they're brilliant, and, but, like, to me, like, the impulses that guide adolescent young men um, often are rooted in absurdity, in humor, in trying to show up each other. Um, and these both lead to like dangerous situations and also um, fr you know deep bonds, you know deep friendship, and that's what I see in Archduke is that these uh, these kids are um, they're thrust together and in, in this in the name of something that they they can barely comprehend, and you know there's a part near the end where like we see their friendship, we see the bonds that have that have been kind of created here, and I find that very moving. Um, and I also find it very tragic, because, um, you know, obviously of, what, of what's about to happen. Um, 
and so I guess I, you know, it's it. There's there's all these different things happening. Like if, if I like to write about wars um, and soldiers and wars, I'm mostly writing about very young men. And so it's about getting into their heads. And um, and in, in in many cases, like you know, there's these are um, like I I have friends and I have family uh, who are soldiers or have been soldiers, and um, and particularly in my family, like that. I, we never really got along. We don't really have much to talk about, and that makes them more interesting to me. Um, the, one of the most gratifying things in my entire career actually happened about a year and a half ago with Brad. Uh, we went up to um, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where there is uh, a theater there called VIPA, Veterans in Performing Arts, and it was started by these uh, two soldiers who met in basic training for Iraq and bonded over the fact that they had done theater as kids and vowed to each other that when they, when they got out of this mess that they were going to start a theater company for veterans, which is exactly what they did. And they did Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo. And so they produced that play, which is a hard play to produce, with, uh, with only veterans in the cast. Um, tragically, the, um, the, one of the two guys who was supposed to play the tiger uh, died about six months before the play was going to be produced from injuries that he had sustained in battle. Um, and so the play took on a, a deeper resonance for those actors and those veterans. Um, but when we went up there and we met with them, we saw the show, which was unbelievably good, and, uh, and then met with them afterwards and, uh, and attempted to keep up with them at the bar. Um, yeah. they, uh, we, we were blown away by their stories. Some of them had been, not all of them were in Af Iraq and Afghanistan. One had been in the Desert Storm back in the 90s. Um, some of them had been veterans that weren't in battle. They had just been placed elsewhere and around the world. But they, they all served, and they were all, they all had these incredible stories. And then I, I was so you know, honored and gratified that they, they felt such a connection to the play and that they were so excited to meet us. And so there was like this kind of like, we were just geeking out on each other, you know? Um, but I guess the, the part that Brad played in Bengal Tiger, I've had qualms about since because I wrote him, I wrote that, it was, it was an early part of my career, but I wrote this, this character of this, of this very simple-minded young soldier who was very confused and very frightened and as a result would spout just nonsense, just you know, inarticulate nonsense. And in the wrong hands, in the wrong, in the, like, in the wrong director or actor, it can come across as very offensive. Um, it makes like I'm making light of soldiers, um, but the interesting thing is that um, any veteran I've ever met uh, have always been like, absolutely know that guy. <laughs> you know, that guy was in my platoon. Was you know, and 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 so that's gratifying. But it was, it's also I think, um, you know, and it's part of it's blind luck, and then part of it I think is just the fact that like. Um, at the end of the day, I'm, like I said before, because I don't, I don't see it within myself to be at least, if not capable, then uh, quality in the soldier department, um, I've, I find myself thinking about it a lot and about what it takes for anybody to, to do anything like that. Well, I think, um, you know, we're probably going to wrap this up, but, but I wanted to uh, see if there were uh, any questions from the folks uh, who are here to... Uh, to watch this today. So um, if there's anybody who has any questions, please let us know and we'll send a, a microphone around to you. Hi, uh, so you said uh, Prince uh, lived to see the end of the war. Uh, what did he think 
of the upshot of all this you know, horror and gore that he had caused? And then what was his feelings about the war at the end of it? I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm speaking um, from a place of authority here, but I, I, I do recall having this conversation with our guide in, in Sarajevo, and I don't, but I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I might be like, you know, <laughs> making something up in history. Yeah, but I think he was very proud because, uh, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the organization, the Black Hand, which started this whole thing, their, their slogan was unification or death, unification of Slavic territories, uh, freeing themselves from the, you know, stranglehold of Austro-Hungary. And that's precisely what the first, one of the things the First World War, quote-unquote, accomplished. Um, it also nearly killed every man in Belgrade um, and, and throughout the Baltic states. And so it, it was, you know, a Pyrrhic victory, if anything. But I, that's what I had heard, is that he, he felt that he was a hero. And what's interesting about traveling in that area is that depending on where you go, some places he's a hero and some places he's a terrorist. And, um, and depending on who you ask... Um, there, are, there are just a lot of people that, that regard him in different ways. Our, our taxi driver in Belgrade, coming from the airport, we asked about it. We said, we're doing a play about Gavril Princip. And he's like, he had a medal on with Princip. And, and, mm-hmm. and he considered him a Christian hero, which was interesting because there's never really anything about him being Christian. Um, he was, but I mean, like, the way that this guy lionized him was certainly related to that. And as we found out, certainly related to his hatred for Muslims. That came out in a taxi ride. So I mean, like these these are not. Um, it's not really history there. It's really a part of like how people are still. It's like my airport small talk nightmare with a taxi. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Does anybody else have any questions? Don't be shy. Mm-hmm. All right. well, I don't want to force. Uh, Anybody to speak, but I, I do want to thank um, everybody here at the museum. Once again, uh, Nadine and Jen for putting on this amazing uh, show, and then uh, also for Rajiv for coming and talking to us today. It was a lot of fun to fun, yeah. uh, pick your yeah. brain again. Yeah, thanks for doing it here in this beautiful place. It's amazing. Thanks. Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.